Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, now as we come to this time where we worship you by opening up our hearts and our minds to hear your word, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us today and teach us, Lord, how to live in accordance to your will. Lord, as we speak of leadership today, I pray, Lord, that you would impress upon our hearts the importance of humble leadership within the church, within the community in which we serve, and even in our homes, Lord. Humility is such an important attribute for any Christian. It is the the character of Christ that was displayed for us on Calvary's cross. So, Father, let us become humble in our service to you in every capacity, especially as it comes to leadership within the church and in our homes, Lord. So teach us, Lord, today, I pray. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, leadership is an important attribute in any, any community or any organization, whether it be the church or a secular organization. The success or failure of, of any community or any organization really is affected by its leadership. A good leader in business, out in the business world, can lead a company to great success. A bad leader can lead a company to failure. Now in the church, as we looked at last week, success in the church looks a little bit different than it looks out in the secular world. But it's uh, the same principle applies. A, A faithful leadership within the church can lead a church to success, that is, in pursuit of the kingdom of God and the kingdom principles. Or bad leadership within the church can lead to failure, can lead away from the kingdom, can lead away from kingdom principles. And so a faithful leader, a godly leader, or godly leadership, not just a leader, but the many leaders within the church is absolutely important. It's of primary importance. So what kind of leader leads the church toward the kingdom, into the kingdom, and toward kingdom principles, living out the kingdom principles in this life? Well, this is Paul's concern in our text today. As we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, or excuse me, 6 through 13. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 through 13. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me there. In this text, Paul teaches us that a godly leader is a humble leader. A godly leader is a humble leader. A successful leader in the kingdom is a humble leader. And to prove this point, Paul contrasts two very different kinds of leadership models. One is based upon the world's idea of a leader, which is a... a, uh, conceited leader a conceited leader and then the other of course is the godly model of leadership looking at a humble leader and so today whether whether you lead in the church or you lead in a business or lead even at home each and every one of us are called to some place some form of leadership in our lifetimes Whether it's here at the church and you're a deacon or or a Sunday school leader or whatever, you're called to a place of leadership within the church. Or it may be at home, 
leading your children in the ways of the Lord. Or it may be in a business or an organization outside the, the walls of the church. But wherever God has called you to lead as a Christian, you're called to be a godly leader. You're called to be a humble leader. So my hope and desire today is that each and every one of us would be encouraged to live in humility in every aspect of our lives. So if you found your place in our text this morning, please stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's holy word. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn from us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you do not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Already, uh, without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are held in honor, you are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Amen. May the Lord add blessings to the reading of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. And you may be seated. So the first model of leadership that Paul shows us here is that which we so often find in the world, and that is the conceited leader, the conceited leader. Here Paul is, is really, in this, this paragraph here, Paul is really addressing the leadership of the, the church there in Corinth. This, this leadership that has led the church into factionalism, into division, right? They have been setting up the church in like these, these little pockets. We follow Apollos, we follow Paul, we follow Peter. And they've led the church to division. And it is this kind of leadership that he focuses on. This kind of leadership has taken its cue from the secular culture around it. And Paul wants to point out a couple of characteristics of that kind of leadership. And the conceited leader, the first characteristic that he points out here is that a conceited leader is, is uh, steeped in arrogance. A secular leader, a conceited leader, is marked by arrogance. Look there at the first couple of verses of our text this morning. 
I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. All of these things that he's been talking about. Remember last week, he said that he and Apollos, uh, they were servants of Christ. Right? You, you, they've been putting them into these do, uh, oppos- opposing camps, and they say, no, 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 we're servants of Christ. That's all we are. Don't exalt us. Don't promote us. We're servants of Christ. And we are stewards of the word of God. That's all these ministers are. They're trying to exalt them and say, no, no, we are servants and stewards. That's it. Don't put us higher than we ought to be. But that's what they're doing here in this church. They are setting up these opposing camps. And what are they doing? They're boasting in their arrogance. Don't, don't apply, we, apply, we have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. That is, go beyond Scripture. That you may be biblical. That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. That you may not be arrogant that you might not be boastful over one against the other. You're saying this group, my group's better than your group because we follow this personality. Or this group says, no, we're better than you because we follow this personality. You see, they're arrogant. They're saying, I'm better than you. I'm better than you because of who I follow and what teaching I follow. Verse 7 says, for who sees anything different in you. Now, the, the little phrase here, uh, sees anything different than you, is one word in the Greek, and really it, it means to distinguish someone or something as superior. So really what Paul is saying here, uh, what makes you any better than anyone else? You think you're hot stuff? What makes you better than anyone else? You're lost in your arrogance. You, you think you are supreme, but you're not. You're no better than the next guy. Your group's not better than this other group. We're equal. We're all the same. We're all sinners in need of God's grace. And then he goes on, this, this kind of uh, arrogance, this sense of superiority. What does it come from? What is it fueled by? What do you have that you do, did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You see, this arrogance, this uh, sense of supremacy is fueled by this idea that I have accomplished something, right? I've accomplished something. I've done something. But Paul says, you haven't done squat. Everything that you have was given to you by God. Everything. I want you to think about this, dear friend. Everything that you have was a gift from God. You were born to your parents here in the United States. You're a citizen of America because God put you here. He allowed you to be born here. You have all the the advantages that we have here in America because God deemed that you be born here in America. He deemed that you would be born in this time period that you were born in. You had no control over that. 
God did that. Who gave you your intellect so that you could go to school and and learn things in school and make something of yourself? Who gave you that intellect? God did. Or who gave you the ability to work with your hands? Who gave you the, the, uh, the, the creativity that you have? Who enables you to get up and do the things that you do? God gave that to you. And you could not do it without God's grace. Everything that you have is according to God's grace. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian, it's not because you are smart enough or wise enough or anything enough or good enough or whatever. It's because God, by His grace, saved you. You cannot boast in your works You cannot boast in your salvation. You can't boast in anything because everything that we have, dear friend, is a gift from God. Arrogance is off the table. Arrogance is off the table. Why do I make more money than the next guy down the street who doesn't have a home? God's grace. Why am I in the place that, God, that I am in today? Because of God's grace. Arrogance is removed. We cannot boast in who we are or what we are. We can only glorify God for everything. But the conceited leader is marked by arrogance. A second characteristic of a, of a conceited leader is triumphalism triumphalism moving on into verse 8 there Paul Paul breaks into sarcasm this is sarcasm in this this verse right here he's really getting on to them right Uh, this is really coming out you you think you're this well let me tell you something right already you have all you want You, you catch the the sarcastic feel to this already you have all that you want Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. They have this idea, this this triumphalism going on within the church. Now, triumphalism, let me define that. Uh, Triumphalism is excessive exaltation over one's success or achievements. And that's what's taking place. They're boasting. They have arrived. This church has arrived. They, we are kings. A lot of the commentators on this verse say that the, the Corinthian church have a, an overrealized eschatology. That's a big word, right? Uh, eschatology is the study of end things. In other words, they, they, they've overrealized the, the end times, right? They, they think, they act as if Christ has already returned and they're reigning and ruling with him already like it has all been accomplished there's nothing else we have arrived and they're living in this kind of a triumphalism trying to exalt themselves over everyone else Uh, well that's the attitude of a conceited leader i have arrived look at the success that i have have come to in life well that's the attitude of a conceited leader now which leadership model do you see most prevalent in our world today Uh, just watch the evening news 
Look at what's taking place in, in Washington and which kind of leadership, what kind of leadership do you see coming through the TV screen? The conceited leader. This is what you see most often. I'm not saying that all of them up there are like that, but this is what you see most often. The conceited leader bragging about, oh, look at what I have accomplished. Look what I have done. This sense of triumphalism we have conquered, we have accomplished, we have accomplished. And this is the attitude that we see over and over in our own culture and throughout society. And let me ask you, where has such leadership led this country America is more divided today than it was in the days of the Civil War the conceited leader conceited leadership leads to disunity it leads to factionalism we are called to lead towards peace and unity. The conceited leader ultimately leads toward factionalism, towards division and disunity. So why in the world would we ever want to adopt such leadership in the church or even in our homes? The second kind of leadership that Paul shows us here is godly leadership, which is the humble leader. The humble leader. The humble leader may be described in, in four terms, and, and we have little, four little sections here that Paul works through in this paragraph. And we can, we can see four terms, or define it in, in four terms. First, the humble leaders. Humble leaders are spectacles. They are spectacles. Look at verse 9, what he says in verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become spectacles to the world, to angels, and to men. Now, we don't catch this in our culture today, but Paul is alluding to uh, kind of this Roman triumph. Roman triumph were these victory parades that would take place in that first century time period. And so the great emperor and his army would go off to war and they would fight their enemy and they would come home in victory. And when they came home in victory, they would have a triumph or a victory parade. And, and first in the parade, of course, was the emperor or the, the, the lead general. They would be right up front. And next would come the great army that did the, the defeating, that delivered the defeating blow. And then the spoil would, would come next. And then last of all, as Paul says, last of all, there would be the defeated king and his generals. And they would be paraded out there as spectacles, as men condemned to death, because the procession ended in the Colosseum where these kings and generals would be humiliated and then the beasts would be released to devour them. Men sentenced to death. And Paul says that's what we apostles are like. We're spectacles. Men sentenced to death. We're like the defeated of the world. 
That's God's place for us right now. They're spectacles. And that's the way Christians are called to be. We're not there yet. Right? We, the final victory hasn't been won yet. We're still waiting for Christ to come back and, and win that final victory. But right now we're in the enemy's territory. And if we live for Christ and we, we live for his glory and we live for kingdom principles, guess what? We're going to be spectacles. We're going to be spectacles to the world. The humble leader is a spectacle to the world. The next characteristic of a humble leader, uh, humble leaders are, are, are displayed as fools. As fools. And look what he says there. And I want to compare this. Notice what he says here, and then I want to compare it to a, a verse back in, in chapter 1. Look at verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Now, compare that to chapter 1, verse 26 through 29. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. Notice what he says. This is the, the characteristics, the attributes of a follower of Jesus Christ. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is lowly, what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, that's the characteristic of a, of a Christian. Those who are foolish in the world, those who are weak, those, those are the people that God chose to bring to nothing the things that are. And Paul, in, in this little, little, little uh, uh, time of, of sarcasm, he says, you say you're wise. You're wise, right? You're boasting in your wisdom while we apostles, we're, we're fools for Christ. You think you're all strong and mighty, but, but that, you didn't get that from us because we display weakness. We don't seek honor in this world. No, we're people of disrepute in the world for Christ's sake. You see, Christians, those who follow Jesus Christ, they will be fools to the world. If you're a follower of the gospel, you will be a fool to the world. You will look like a fool to the rest of the world. Those who desire God to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, Jesus says. You will be persecuted. If you want to follow after Jesus, you will be persecuted. You will be called a fool for your beliefs. I remember several years back, I went on a mission trip up to a, a place that was not, they're just not really receptive to Christianity. Not that they openly persecute Christians, but uh, they're just not that open to Christianity. And the missionary there invited me to preach one Sunday. And their church was meeting out in the open. 
in the, the city there, a place out by the, the beach. And so we set up church out there on a pier, and we had church there, and I preached that Sunday morning. And of course, I preached Christ crucified, right? We're sinners in need of a Savior, and Christ died for us to save us. I preached the gospel. And I remember watching as people walked by, and I would see people who would walk by, and they would listen and walk away shaking their head. I even have one fella uh, after the service who was kind of a newcomer to the church. He had just been started coming to the church. And, and he came up and he asked, why would you preach such a message? I mean, that was just depressing. That, that wasn't encouraging that we're sinners. You see, that's the way of the world. That's the way of the world's thinking. Why would I preach the gospel? Why would I preach sin? Why would I, I preach that you are dying and going to hell unless you repent and turn to Jesus Christ? Why would I preach that? That's not a popular message. And let me tell you, friend, there's a lot of churches out there that they don't preach that message. They don't preach sin. They don't preach the blood of Jesus Christ because that's offensive to the world. And the world says that's foolish. But no, no, no. That's the wisdom of God. If I fail to preach the gospel, and I fail to teach people about Jesus, and I send them to hell thinking they're all right, if you're going to live for Christ, you've got to be a fool for Christ. A humble leader is a fool for Christ. So humble leaders are spectacles, they're fools. Third, they're sufferers. They are sufferers. Notice what he says there, continuing on. Verse 11, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. Now, Paul, you remember, was a tent maker. He was a tent maker, so he was a, a laborer, right? He got out there, he sweated by the sweat of his brow. He made his living by the sweat of his brow, and he did physical labor to support himself because he didn't want to put that off on other people. And, and this was, in that culture, offensive. Like, if you were a common laborer, you hadn't arrived yet. And so all of these other philosophers, these secular philosophers who would travel around, uh, they made a living by their speaking, and they were, you know, if you were a good speaker, you were well off. But Paul here, he, he's working a laborer's job. Well, that wasn't very reputable among the, the wealthy of society. And Paul says, no, no, but look, that's not me. I work with my hands. I own that. that. That's who I am. I, I, that doesn't make me any uh, better or, uh, or less of a person because I work with my hands. We labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. See, the apostles demonstrated their love for Jesus Christ for suffering for Christ's sake. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus says, And he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
Let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and follow me. A cross is an implement of suffering, right? It's not a lounge chair. Jesus doesn't say, take up your lounge chair and follow me. It's not going to be an easy ride. Take up your cross. Take up your implement of suffering and follow me. That's the Christian life. Dear friend, if you don't like that, I'm sorry. But that's the way it goes. The Christian life is marked with suffering. Now, we've had a great privilege here in the United States that we haven't had to suffer like so many of our brothers and sisters out in the rest of the world have to suffer. I mean, we have brothers and sisters who are meeting today in secret because if they met in in the open, they would be sent off to jail and some even murdered for their faith. We've had a great privilege. We have, a, have had a good run here in the United States. And, and now we have this sense of triumphalism because when, when we get our feathers ruffled a little bit and when the world says, oh, how can you believe? You can't believe that. You can't do that. Oh, well, why? You, oh, right. We bow up. Who are you telling me? I, I'm a Christian. I have a right. You're called to suffer. We think it's strange that we're, we're starting to be persecuted for our Christian beliefs, but that's the way it's been for 2,000 years. We're just getting back to normal, really. No need to get our feathers ruffled over that. We just endure the suffering. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've got to take up your cross. You've got to suffer a little bit. Where does that suffering begin? It starts with suffering the desires of our own flesh, doesn't it? It starts with suffering the desires of our own flesh, of battling against our own flesh, because our own flesh, our own flesh wants to sin. It wants to chase the things of the world. And I'm afraid that too many Christians have got so caught up into the world, they're chasing the things of the world, and they're not suffering for Jesus. They're not crucifying the flesh for the sake of Jesus Christ. See, that's part of the suffering crucifying your own will, your own desire to follow the desires of Christ. Part of the suffering. Part of the suffering is when your kid can't play ball or softball because you refuse to let them play on Sunday. Yeah, I'm meddling now, aren't I? Part of the suffering is refusing to follow the the way of the world. It's refusing to live together before your marriage because the world says that's cool, but God's Word says it's not. Part of the suffering is saying, I'm going to crucify my sexual desire and I'm going to do what God says is right and I'm not going to follow that path. I'm going to remain pure until I'm married. That's part of suffering for Christ. The other part of suffering for Christ is upholding God's word even when it's not cool in our culture. It's standing up for biblical marriage, saying God has the right. God formed the the bond of marriage. He instituted marriage. He has the right to define it as he wills, and he's defined marriage as one man, one woman, for a lifetime, period. And if you're not cool with that, sorry, but that's God's prerogative. We stand up for biblical marriage. We can't give in to that. We can't say that homosexual marriage is okay. 
The world says it's okay, but we can't because God says, no, it's not. That's not the way I defined it. That's part of the suffering. Let me tell you, people are leaving, especially the Baptist churches and other churches who have, have remained st steadfast in the word of God and the principles of God. People are leaving the church because they're not conforming to the, the way of the world. We're going to suffer, friend. We're going to suffer as the world goes more and more secular. A humble leader is a sufferer for Christ's sake. So the humble leaders, humble leaders are spectacles, they're fools, they're sufferers, and last, they're scum. <laughs> That's pretty strong, isn't it? Just scum. Look what he says there in that, that last little line. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all. That's the way the world sees those who follow after Christ. They see them as scum. They're not, they're not giving in. They're not following the, the way of the world. They're not following what everybody thinks is right and cool and all of that kind of stuff. They're just scum. We don't need to spend time with them. We don't need to do anything for them. We don't need to give them liberty, religious liberty, or any other kind of liberty because they're just scum. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus tells his disciples, here's a promise from, from the Lord. Matthew chapter 19, verse 28 through 30, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, that's the twelve disciples, will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left house and our brother, our sister, our father, our mother, our child, our children for uh, our land, for my name's sake, will receive hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. See, that's the promise in the, the new land, right? The, the, the heaven that is to come, the eternal heaven that we're going to be studying about on Sunday nights, the eternal heaven. The 12 will sit on 12 thrones and they will rule and reign over the kingdom. And all of us who follow after Christ will, will rule and reign with Christ. We've got a great inheritance coming, but... That wasn't true of the apostles' life in this lifetime. No, Paul suffered much for, his, for, for, for Christ's sake. And, and then he, his life was ended by being beheaded in Rome. Peter was crucified upside down. John was boiled alive and, and then exiled to Patmos, the island of Patmos. Thomas took the gospel all the way to India, but then was speared to death for his troubles. No, all, all of these lived humble lives and died humble deaths for the cause of Jesus Christ. But let me tell you, through their lives, the church was established. 
And we're here today because they lived in humility and they died in humility to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. The humble leader crucifies the flesh, crucifies his or her pride in order to point people to Christ. And a humble leader leads towards unity in Christ rather than disunity. A godly leader, friend, is a humble leader. So what leadership model are you following, friend? What leadership model are you following, deacon? What leadership model are you following, father, mother? What leadership are you following, business owner? Leader in whatever business you may be in. What business model are you looking after future leaders? If you want to be used by God, abandon the conceited leadership model displayed by the world and follow instead the humble leadership model exemplified to us by Christ himself. Philippians 2, 3 through 8, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he was God in heaven before he, he came to this earth. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. But taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Follow Jesus. Follow Christ in his leadership. Now, friend, today, if, you're, if you don't know the leadership of Christ in your own life, then you will never really benefit from humble leadership. You'll, you'll never realize the eternal reward of humble leadership. And today... You have to start, the path, start the, the path of humble leadership by humbling yourself before Jesus Christ. Bowing before King Jesus and surrendering your life to Him. He humbled Himself. He went to Calvary's cross and died on the cross for your sin in your place. So that you might have life in Him. If you'll only now humble yourself before him, bow before him, surrender to him today as Lord of your life. Will you do that? Will you receive eternal life from him today? Just trust in him. That's all you need to do. Turn to Jesus today. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray 
that we would heed this call to humble leadership. Lord, every person here is a leader in some capacity, whether in the church, in business, or at home. Each person is called to some, some way, some form of leadership in their lives. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us, we would surrender ourselves to you, allow you to work in us to make us humble leaders. Lord, make each of us humble Christians, humble followers of you. That's where Christianity starts. It starts in humility, humbling ourselves before your throne of grace. So, Father, now let us become what you have made us to be. And, Lord, if there's any that, don't, that do not know Jesus today, open their eyes to Christ. Let them see what he has accomplished for them. Let them surrender today. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen.